Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Mitchell Zukoff. He is the Summer Sumner M. Redstone Professor of Narrative Studies at Boston University. He covered 9-11 for the Boston Globe and wrote the lead news story on that day of the attacks. Zukov is author of seven previous works of nonfiction, including the number one New York Times bestseller, 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi, which became the basis of the Paramount Pictures movie of the same name. As a member of the Boston Globe Spotlight team, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in investigative reporting and the winner of numerous national awards. He lives outside Boston. The book is The Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11. And uh, Mr. Zukov, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I, I was saying to you offline, I'm just in awe of this book. I, I think what moved me the most is how personal I felt, how personally well I felt I knew the people that you wrote about, both the passengers in the, in the flights that uh, crashed and, and also the people that worked in the Pentagon and in the Twin Towers. And I see that you used accounts from the trial of, of, uh, of Musawi. Uh, you used uh, information from government documents and trial transcripts and books and periodicals and documentaries and broadcast works. But I can tell from how personal the accounts are that much of this information that was most valuable came from interviews with survivors and family and friends and witnesses and emergency responders and military and government officials uh, that, that brought together this story uh, in such vivid detail. Thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping to do, because we can understand 9-11 as a series of numbers, you know, four planes, 19 hijackers, nearly 3,000 killed, you know, and on and on. But we're not going to really hold on to it unless we can capture the, the feelings and know the people and, and engage with the people who, who lived and in some cases died that day. And so I thought that, especially at this moment where we're just far enough away that memories are starting to fade and that we have an entire generation without memories of their own, it was important to, to humanize the story uh, so you could attach yourself to one particular firefighter or one woman high up in the North Tower or one uh, Navy commander inside the Pentagon and on and on, or one family inside a hijacked plane. Uh, that's the way we remember things vividly and sort of viscerally. Mm -hmm. So if, if we start at the, at the very beginning, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint a beginning, as you point out, because of the um, uh, history of things like uh, the, the Crusades and the, uh, the Ottoman Empire fall and, and things like that. But really, if we look at where this initiated, this terrible attack, it, February 23, 1998, is when Osama bin Laden issued a fatwa, basically declaring war on all Americans, civilian and military, wherever they were. Exactly. And, and, and it got very little attention. Um, we didn't take it seriously enough, obviously, in, in, in retrospect. Uh, it was dismissed as the, the sort of the rantings of a madman in a cave in Afghanistan. And we were sort of, and when I say we, you know, you have to include our, our government, our military. We were still in many ways fighting the last war. We were focused on the threat of Russian bombers coming over the North Pole or uh, Russian cruise missiles being fired from subs off the coasts. And, and so 
we weren't thinking that was a threat we needed to take as seriously as obviously we did. So I use that day because that was the day where uh, Osama bin Laden did, as you just said, uh, explain his intentions and his plans quite clearly. And and they were carried out those few years later. Mm-hmm. Well, now, I, I think it's important to note that we just didn't have the mindset for this. And, and, and that was true throughout the events of that day and, and days pre- previous because um, they... Uh, they they just had no conception that something like this could happen. There could be multiple hijacked planes. The, the FAA didn't talk to the military and the, the uh, and vice versa. And uh, when they did receive certain kinds of communication, and the fire department and the police department mm-hmm. in New York couldn't talk to each other. And there was so much lack of communication across disciplines, plus the lack of a, a mental paradigm for something like this. You've put it really, really well. That's exactly right on both sort of the the micro level, the failure to communicate even, you know, across frequencies at the fire department and the the NYPD, Uh, but then the sort of the the, the macro sense of the failure to communicate, the failure to imagine what might be possible. Um, And but they even they they come down to even uh, I think easy to grasp concepts. So on 9/11. The State Department had a list of 60,000 terrorists. It's terrorist tip-off list, they called it. And on the, that list were two of the members of the, the, the hijacking teams, um, the, the two who were on, two of those who were on Flight 77, which hit the Pentagon. The FAA had a no-fly list of a dozen names. It, the, the head FAA aviation security official was not even aware that the terrorist tip-off list, the State Department list, existed. So those kinds of failures to communicate, you know, I'm not blaming. What I'm saying is what we need to do is understand what happened and so we don't repeat history. Um, the, only, the, the, the blame for these events certainly that lie with uh, al-Qaeda, with Osama bin Laden, with the men who carried out these heinous, unspeakable acts. What we need to do is learn from them, and and part of the story, even as I tell it through the individuals, are those uh, those points that you just raised. Yeah, and and it, it's also true that, that uh, not only we not conceive of multiple hijackings, but we sort of insecurity in the airports. We're looking for bombs rather than things like small knives. Precisely, precisely. So you could you could get on a plane, and and if you got on the plane, for instance. Um, you know, they they wouldn't worry about your your luggage because they, the thought was always, if there's a bomb in your luggage, you wouldn't get on the plane, and and so that was the mindset. Okay, so we're focused on on potential bombings. Uh, we are not focused on you know the, the 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 concept that someone would get on a plane and turn it into a, a weapon of suicide and homicide was completely outside anyone's mindset that you would use small knives and a willing and, and a knowledge of how to fly uh, a Boeing 757 or 767 and then fly it into a, a you know a building or a structure knowing that it would kill you and everyone aboard uh, simply was not on the radar quite literally mm-hmm. and uh, even though we knew the names of a couple of these guys uh, the CIA and the FBI weren't talking to each other amongst the many agencies that weren't sharing information and that's a part of the issue. That's exactly right. 
That is exactly right. Um, you know that that the CIA certainly knew that that some members were Al Qaeda. They there there were reports of of men, uh, you know, with with no visible means of support, suddenly coming to America and uh, taking flight lessons, and and it just simply wasn't being communicated communicated in any meaningful way. And I'm 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 pleased to say that you know. Uh, it, it obviously at, at a tremendous cost, but a lot of that, I believe, based on the counter counterterrorism folks I've talked to and, and things I've come to know, uh, a lot of that has improved. But at the time, certainly, that that created vulnerabilities that that caused tremendous suffering. Well, and you should add that even though it's terribly inconvenient to be a passenger on an airline anymore, they certainly are more careful in checking as you, as you pass through security than they were in in two thousand and one. You know, having having written this book, uh, having done this work, I, I fly a great deal, and I am just so grateful to the to the men and women who are are, are going that extra yard. If it means pulling me out of line, if it means checking my my hands for uh, for some kind of residue, uh, by all means, please do that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So. Uh, let's talk about the mindset of, of the terrorist group because they were radicalized over time and managed to get visas to come over here to learn how to fly jets. And so let's talk a little bit about the history prior to 2001 of, of the, the terrorist teams that were recruited. Sure. I, I always divide them into two groups. So if, of the of the 19 who were on the four planes that day, you really it's it's smart to focus, I believe, on the four who were the pilots who, who they were the. Um, the real operatives of the of the scheme. The other fifteen are known colloquially as the muscle hijackers. Uh, not terribly well educated. Uh, they were there simply to provide security and and to to brutalize uh, the passengers and crew uh, to allow the four pilot hijackers to do um, their 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 deadly work. Uh, the the leader was of course Mohammed Atta who uh, had, had been raised in Egypt and was uh, of, of a prosperous family and was radicalized um, almost certainly when he went to Hamburg and fell in with a, um, uh, just a, um, a mosque that was uh, just, you know, virulently anti-West. And, uh, you know, he, he fell into this circle and then ultimately decided to go, um, like the other uh, pilot hijackers, um, commit jihad, you know, um, to wage battle. And that's because he was uh, intelligent and he was uh, somewhat westernized, having been living in, in Germany. Uh, he appealed to Osama bin Laden and uh, to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and to some of the other top al-Qaeda officials. Uh, and, and as somebody who could operate in the West, learn how to fly, and, and carry out what they had referred to as the planes operation, and so, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were convinced uh, that 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 they would get their reward um, uh, upon the, uh, you know, the moment that they committed these acts, and each of them had a document, and and several of these documents were recovered. One was in luggage that didn't make it onto one of the planes. One was. Um, Recovered at the Flight 93 uh, site in in Shanksville, uh, a document in Arabic called that was known 
as the last night document where it outlined what they expected to happen and also with a reward that uh, that they would receive, if you will, um, at the first spilling of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, they they all, some of them got training in in fighting with knives, with with short knives, and how to use them. And uh, and we can't forget that there's pepper spray involved here too that made it possible for them to take over these planes. Yes, exactly. At um, Al Qaeda training camps when they were. Um, you know, they they got training in close quarters combat, and uh, particularly the the fifteen muscle hijackers, uh, they were uh, they understood that their role was, and 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 while they were here, when when they came to the United States, um, many of them continued training uh, in in martial arts and in close quarters combat, and so they, they uh, this was absolutely their their way of carrying this out. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my, my conspiracy theory friends uh, just can't believe that this wasn't a, a, you know, a, a plot by powers that be. But if we look at the timing, I think the timing is really crucial here. When, when we read about uh, the, the first air traffic controller that, that notices that uh, the first flight that's going into the, the North Tower, uh, the transponder gets turned off and it's off course. Um, there are some things that they could have done at that point, uh, especially because the terrorists were trying to communicate with the plane, but they were communicating on a channel that was picked up by other planes and the air traffic controller, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And and, and first, let me address for a second the conspiracy theorists. And, and what they're doing is, is essentially the opposite of what I do and what the work of journalists is. They start with a conclusion and they backfill um, often, I think, misleadingly, uh, to try to fit that conclusion that they've already reached. And instead, mm-hmm. what, what I'm doing here is taking information and piece by piece asking a question, what happened? Who did what? What was known when? Um, and that's the work of journalism, and it's the exact opposite. And when, when we engage with some of these conspiracy theorists, uh, frankly, it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole where you knock down one of their theories and they come up with something else and then you can spend your life chasing your tail that way. What I urge them to do, and and read my book, and there are almost a thousand uh, credited source notes um, that explain how I have written what I've written. And then, you know, to your point about uh, the failures of communication and, and, and what was happening, their, their minds, it goes back to this issue of the mindset. There was a, a standard protocol expectation of what happened when, a, when a, a hijacking took place, that the FAA wasn't expecting a need uh, to react so quickly that they needed to contact the military. Because, a pro, because the understanding or the expectation was that a hijacker would... Um, make demands, would ask for money or political prisoners to be freed or, or something to, along those lines, would land the plane or ask the pilot or force the pilot to land the plane somewhere. And so that was the, the, the standard operating procedure. Nobody at the FAA effectively uh, had any expectation that the, that the hijackers would disable or, or kill the, the pilots fly the plane themselves with no intent of landing or communicating demands whatsoever. 
so those delays, uh, which I, I lay out in the book, uh, on a, a really almost a second by second in times basis, uh, cause tragic delays in, in potential operations that could have stopped further planes from taking off. Flight 93 was, was in a long flight delay. Could that have been prevented entirely by um, communications? I believe so. Uh, you know, ultimately, we did get a ground stop. There was, you know, a, a, a remarkable uh, FAA official named Ben Sliney who just demanded no more planes are taking off. Every plane in the sky is getting landed immediately. And so, you know, those those things that I lay out and, and, and show what could have happened. And I, I think, you know, one of the, the, the featured uh, subjects of the book is a, is a fellow named Kevin Nisipini. And, and Kevin was the, a major in the uh, Northeast Air Defense Sector, which is part of NORAD, which is, you know, the air defense system we have in this country. And, mm-hmm. and his frustration is, is monumental because he had planned all his life in, in many ways to, to defend the skies from, from danger. But he can't do it. He can't do his job. He can't scramble the, the F-16s or the F-15s unless he's given information of what's happening. And those delays to, to reach Kevin Asipini and his teams in uh, NIADS, as it's known, uh, I think, you know, compounded the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And then we also went back and forth about whether or not it was okay to shoot down civilian aircraft to save a larger number of people and, and that really hadn't had a direct order in that regard. Exactly, exactly. This is the this sort of the, the, the philosophical, the moral problem, sometimes known as the, the, the train problem. You know, do you do derail a, a train um, that may kill one person on the tracks if you believe that it will kill far more people um, you know, if you don't. And, and, and so uh, even as they were wrestling with that, they were waiting to hear from, um, from the White House, from, uh, you know, the, the president, President Bush, was, was not in the White House at the time. He was in Florida and then on Air Force One. And um, Dick Cheney, the vice president, was at the White House. But in the meantime, they were making plans. Kevin Asipini and his team were saying, were saying, if that order comes, if we are told to... Uh, to, to take down a, civil, a hijacked civilian airliner, the way we're going to do it is this. We're going to use, as he put it uh, in, a, in a, a, a tape that I have, um, an aim in the face, and, you know, basically meaning a, a, a surface-to-surface um, missile, an air-to-air missile uh, in the nose of the plane. And, and he, at that mm-hmm. moment, couldn't focus primarily on the moral issues but as we saw two towers burning with thousands of people either killed or in danger and another plane that had gone into the Pentagon, when he is trying to set up uh, a combat air patrol over Washington and frankly had the, the heroes aboard Flight 93 not have done what they did and, and risen up against the terrorists in that plane that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, that was certainly headed toward Washington. And the only question is, was it headed toward the Capitol or toward the White House? And I think there's a lot of evidence that it was more likely toward the Capitol. So if you think about that building, that, that you know, remarkable white dome you know, sitting on Capitol Hill in the heart of Washington, 
uh, the idea that that would have been burning and untold numbers of people might have been uh, killed or, or injured, uh, I, I think it's it's I, I don't know if it's fortunate. I don't know I don't know what the right word is that it didn't come to the question of of do do, do we have one of our fighters take that plane out or try to, um, but it. It's something that we had to examine, and I, and I, I do examine it in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to spend a couple of minutes with the, the, the tragedy of errors inside the Twin Towers because the miscommunication mm-hmm. and the, the fact that they had had a bomb previously and dealt with it in a different way encouraged people. In, when, this, when these planes hit, they encouraged people to stay where they were and wait for rescuers to come to them. Some people started to climb, thinking there might be a roof rescue. Roof rescues were outlawed be, uh, because of the smoke and flames. Uh, there were so many sad things that kept people from getting out when they could have. In fact, uh, some people went down and then went back up in the south. That's exactly right. Oh, this was excruciating to, to piece these, these elements together. Um, and you described them perfectly. Some people heading toward the roof because there were um, some rooftop refu- res- rescues um, in, in 1993 when the bomb went off underneath. Um, but again, the idea that after this, the North Tower is hit first, um, messages are being sent up in the PA system in the South Tower saying, you know, stay where you are. This is not the building that's been hit. And and people stayed, and some people, as as you described, there was a story I tell about a fellow named Stanley Premnus, uh, who went down. He was working in Fiji Bank and went down with uh, several dozen of his colleagues down to the lobby in the South Tower, and a guard down there told them, "What are you What are you doing? Uh, you know, you're fine. Head back to work." And Stan describes how his colleagues. Uh, he hesitated, and and he was worried about a um, a temporary worker who was very frightened, and he sent her home. And then he got, but he got back on the elevator uh, with all these colleagues from 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 Fuji Bank, from Fiji Bank, and um, went back up. And none of them made it out. And Stan got to the eighty first floor. And the story I tell about uh, what happened with him and, and Brian Clark uh, is, uh, to me, it, it gives me shivers even thinking about it. Just so remarkable. But the amount of miscommunication and, and you know, a certain number of these people simply could not have gotten out. People certainly on the upper floors of the North Tower where all the stairwells, all the exits uh, were blocked or, or, or destroyed. But the number of people who might have been saved in the South Tower, uh, just it compounds the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pentagon is something that I don't remember seeing much about on the news. I-, I suspect that the military didn't want people to know how vulnerable they were, but you tell the story very vividly of acts of heroism to get people out and how bad the flames were and how some people were lost there, too. Uh, I don't think we knew much about that uh, in 2001. I think you're absolutely right. It was certainly it was a um, an overlooked part of the of, of the events of the story, if you will. Um, and that's why I, I, I took pains to make sure people understood um, 
some of the extraordinary things that happened in the Pentagon and, and the detail of what happened in the Pentagon. And I, I think of, uh, you know, on the second floor in the Army Personnel Center, um, a lieutenant colonel named Marilyn Wills, who, who crawled across burning carpet uh, with a civilian worker on her back to save her. And, and, mm-hmm. and Dave Tarantino, who was nowhere near where Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, um, but who, when it, it happened, he, he, you know, he saw himself. He was a Navy doctor. He could have been a hero if he had just gone to the, uh, the courtyard of the Pentagon and, and triaged patients. But instead, Davey, Dave saw himself as uh, people in the Navy do, which is on, on a, sh- a ship, every sailor is a fighter fighter. And so that's the role he appointed for himself. And he went deeper and deeper, closer and closer toward the flames. And he, he found his way into the Navy command center on the first floor in the wedge of the Pentagon where the plane went in. And he went deeper and deeper into this, this burning, these rooms effectively until he saw, uh, what was happening in the farthest reaches. A, a fellow named Jerry Henson and, and Jerry, uh, was a, uh, Jerry Hansen, pardon me, uh, was a, um, uh, a retired naval aviator who had come back to work at the Pentagon, and Jerry was trapped under a, a fallen desk and a, and a bookshelf. And Dave climbs in to this room, and Dave was a, um, a, a rower at Stanford in college many, many years before, had very powerful legs, and he flips onto his back and leg presses these this desk and uh, bookshelves off of Jerry uh, while he was trapped underneath them to try to save him. And so these are stories that to me are stories that every American school child should know. Uh, people should know about these, these incredible acts of, of self-sacrifice and heroism. Um, and, and the purpose, frankly, of the book is to make sure those aren't lost. And, and, and it's, it's brilliantly told. I, I couldn't put it, I had difficulty reading it because it's so painful and I couldn't put it down because it's so, so vivid. But let's talk a minute about Rise from the Ashes because the, you do leave us with hope afterwards and, uh, some of the victories and, uh, of the survivors and what they, um, are looking forward to now. Yes. You know, uh, what I came across again and again were stories of people who were, Stronger in the broken places, as, as the, the line goes. Um, certainly, there was a tremendous amount of suffering, but again and again, uh, people rose up from there and and lived, you know, remarkable lives and and uh, and put things back together in their lives in in extraordinary ways. And you know, I think of um, you know, a woman named uh, Julie Sweeney Roth, who. Who lost her husband on the second plane? Brian Musweeney was a, 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 a guy who had been a Top Gun instructor, and uh, and he left this remarkable voicemail from the plane that Julie recited for me word for word and pause for pause, and 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 Brian's message to her was to go live your life, be happy, and Julie took those to heart and and has done exactly that. 
And she gives back. She gives tours, actually, at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York and, and remembers his strength. And she's gone on to a really, a, a, really a beautiful life, the, the life that Brian wanted for her. Um, and I think of, you know, I mentioned uh, Stan and, and Brian, uh, who saved each other on in the, in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. And they started a friendship that they, they feel is a, a, a bond of brotherhood to this day. And each has been at the, uh, the wedding of, of their, the other's children, and they're introduced to other members of, you know, of the, the, the party as, uh, this is my brother Brian, this is my brother Stan. And those takeaways, and I, I tell those in the third part of the book, um, are especially meaningful. And, and, and I, I think of Jay, Juna, Jay Jonas, and, and uh, a fire department captain at the time, uh, and the men of Ladder 6, who, you know, incredibly survive inside the falling North Tower because they had stopped to help Josephine Harris. And they, after that, make Josephine part of their company. So um, that, these that part of the story. Thank you. Everything in here is touching, and there's so many cases where just by a stroke of luck, somebody survived or somebody didn't. And there's the awful terror of the people who plummeted from up high because they didn't want to burn, and it's it's just a must read. And uh, we're we're out of time, unfortunately. But I, I wanted to note the uh, the words of Appendix One because you told a lot of good stories. But you said for every story told in this book, a thousand others also deserve to be remembered. Stories of close calls, selfless acts, waiting, and deliverance of loss and pain. And although it was impossible to include them all here, the book would feel incomplete without the names of all the men, women, and children known to have been killed in the attacks in the aftermath. And you list them by name and by, by age. And uh, and the second appendix, the timeline, is also a, a great support while you're reading this book. Just a, a, a fabulous piece of work, and I thank you so much for writing. I'm touched. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. We've been talking with Mitchell Zukoff. His, his book is Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11. I remind our listeners, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch up with us on our YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Thanks for listening, and make it a great day.